Good morning. <clears throat> well, welcome to Grace Community Church. And welcome to our, our ongoing study of the book of Malachi. Let's pray together. God, you are a great king. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God, we come before you this morning thankful for your grace to us. Thankful that you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves in Christ. God, you've taken our sin and you've removed it from us. God, we praise you for what you've done. God, we thank you that this message of this glorious gospel, God, you, you've made it known to us, God. You spoke to us through your word. God, we, we exalt your name this morning because you have spoken to us through your word. Now we praise you. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your word in a language that we can understand. God, I pray that you would help us this morning as we open your word. God, that your word would be to us a fire, a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. God, that your word would be a joy to us and the delights of our heart. God, we do ask that you would speak to us. Well, we don't want to hear your word idly or casually, God. We want to hear your word in power. So, God, would you please speak to us? Those who build the house, Lord, labor in vain unless you dwell with them, God, unless you build the house. So, God, would you come and build the house this morning? God, would you guard my mouth? Would you guard our ears? God, help us to be dissuaded from distraction this morning so that we might hear what you have to say to us. God, we thank you for this word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. If you have your Bible, open up to Malachi chapter 3. And we're going to be in verse 6 through 18. And uh, this is the fourth or, or fifth week, maybe, that we've been walking through the book of Malachi. It's hard to know where you're going until you know where you've been. And so just by way of a, a brief uh, overview, a brief catch up to where we are. We've been looking at Malachi. We were told that Malachi is the last link in the chain of Old Testament prophecy before the 400 year gap between the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 1 verse 1 says that long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. And so when we open this prophecy of Malachi, we're getting a glimpse of God speaking to his people. And this ought to have our attention really early, that we get to gaze upon God directly addressing his people through the mouth of this prophet. And what we've seen as we walk through this book is that God is bringing up charges against the people of Israel. And instead of repenting, we've seen these disputes that people have with God. As in, God brings up a charge and they argue with him about whether or not he's right. Imagine that. Arguing with God about whether he is right or he's wrong. And yet that's what we've seen throughout this whole book. And in fact, if you look at chapter 1, you don't have to flip there. You can listen. This is just a, a brief overview. Chapter 1, uh, God says, I have loved you. And the people say, how? How have you loved us? They're questioning God's love. In chapter 2, verse 6, God says, Nope, wrong one. Chapter 2, verse 17, I'm sorry. God says, uh, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but the people say, How have we wearied him? Chapter 3, verse 8, we say, uh, God says, Will man rob God? But you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And so imagine this. 
God has told us in the book of Malachi, chapter 2, he says, I am a great king. My name will be feared in all the earth. And yet these people, when they're charged from the great king, they say, how have we done these things? Instead of responding how they should have. And we've seen two things clearly as we've walked through the book of Malachi. Two themes, if you will. We've seen a theme of fear that runs throughout this book. There is barely a paragraph. You can't find a chapter in this book that doesn't mention the fear of the Lord. In chapter 1, verse 6, we see it clearly here. God says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Chapter 1, later on in verse, uh, verse 14, God says, I am a great king. And my name will be feared among the nations. And then he's speaking about Levi in chapter 2, verse 5. And he says, uh, the covenant I made with Levi, that was a covenant of fear. And he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. In chapter 3, verse 5, like we covered last week, God makes a distinction between the people who are purified and those who are judged. And he says to those who are judged, those who are going to be judged are called those who do not fear my name. And then also we're going to see next week, God makes a distinction. He says, for those who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So suffice it to say that this is a theme here that God is showing that uh, fearing his name is something that we ought to be tuning into. And so this prophecy has a lot to say to us about what, A, it looks like to fear the Lord, and then, B, the importance of fearing the Lord. And since we see this as a, a theme throughout the book, we want to pay attention to it. But then specifically in our passage today, it's going to have a lot to say about the importance of fearing the Lord. And another thing that we've seen again and again, not in this book, every other book of the Bible, but certainly in this book, is that God hears and sees all things. And we're going to clearly see this in our passage today. So by way of introduction to our passage, what I want to do is just remind us that our life, every day that we live, every breath that we take, is lived like a theater, a stage, if you will. And God always sits front and center, and he never misses a line. Every word you've spoken has all been heard by God. He sees, sees and hears everything. This is important for us to know about God. But not only does God not miss a line, God never misses a motive. More so than the things that come out of our mouth, God sees our hearts. So by way of introduction to our passage this morning, we need to know that. That God sees and hears all things, never misses a line, and never misses a motive. And so, with this in mind, we're going to move through our passage uh, slowly. We're not going to read the whole thing right now. We're going to take it in chunks. And uh, I want to be able to walk away. I want you to be able to walk away from this passage having something to remember. I hope many things. But if nothing else, I've got this broken up on your sheets in two categories. What type of people should we not be? What type of people should we be? If you can't remember that, I, don't, I can't help you. So I really want us to be able to remember that. That's why I made this so easy. So let's consider first the sort of people that we should not be. We're going to read verse 6 through 12. God's word says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so they will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. 
And so, God introduces this charge, these last two charges here. He introduces these by reminding them of two things that we see immediately. The first thing he reminds them of is found in verse 7. He says that they are not as godly as they think they are. Verse 7 says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. And so the people here have huge spiritual blind spots because their problem that they have is not a few weeks or months or even years old. They have never walked in God's ways. And even though they consider themselves as walking in God's ways, God has been confronting that in this entire prophecy, in this entire book. And here he comes out and clearly says, you have never walked in my ways. Imagine hearing that from God. And the second reason, the second thing that he introduces here is found in verse six. He says the reason that they are consumed or not consumed right now has absolutely nothing to do with their covenant keeping. They are terrible at keeping covenants. They have broken God's covenant God's covenants their entire life. In fact, God confronted them in chapter two because they are faithless in their marriage and not keeping covenant with their wives. And God says, the reason that you've been preserved, the reason that you were not consumed is not because of anything that you've done. You have not kept covenant with me and it has everything to do with my nature, my unchanging nature. And so with this reminder, he brings up a charge against them. We find the charge in verse eight. Verse eight says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? Now, the elephant in the room with this charge here is that this is a, a striking charge. It's interesting. Doesn't God own literally everything in existence? Didn't he create everything and therefore he owns everything? So God can't be robbed, can he? It's all his. How can God be robbed? And yet... He says here, you are robbing me in your tithes and in your contributions. So why does he say this? Why does he say this about their tithing? And to answer this, we're not going to take a deep history lesson. We're going to skip a rock across a pond here. But to answer this, we need to think back to one of the reasons for God setting up the system of tithing in the Old Testament. So God gave increase to his people, grain and, and grapes and Olives for oil and wine and those type things. God gave the increase for a purpose. And part of that purpose is found in Numbers 18.21. You don't have to flip there. Just listen to it. Numbers 18.21. This is God speaking to his people. He says, to the Levites, I've given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for the service that they do in the tent of meeting. And so very simply, God speaks to the Levites and he says that these Levites who are serving in his temple, they're to be supported by a tithe from the people of Israel. And this is how the Levites got their living, so to speak. The people would receive uh, resources of the land, which is a gift from God. And God had a portion, some of that to be the way that the Levites would get their living. They might live off of the tithes and the tithe itself was a certain percentage of the increase of the land that the people were bringing in. The tithe itself was a required minimum that everyone in Israel was to bring in to the storehouse for the service of the temple so that the priests, the Levites, they could support themselves from that. And so we see tithing discussed early in uh, the historical books of the Bible. But also if you look here at verse 10, God briefly says the exact same thing. He sums up what his intentions are with the tithe. He says in verse 10, the people want to bring the tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. But what did the people do? Instead of bringing the tithe in, what did the people do? They either didn't bring any tithe in at all, or if they did bring a tithe in, it was only a portion of what God required of them. And God looks at this, this lack of giving, lack of walking in his word. And he says, you are robbing me when you do this. And so let's ask a question. Why does God call attention to their tithing? It feels like we've already answered that question. 
But God calls attention to their tithings to their tithing for two reasons. One question, or I'm sorry, one reason he uh, brings attention to their tithing is because it is certainly sin. God hates it. God hates it. They outright took God's word about tithing, cast it over their shoulder, and walked in the way that they thought was right. And therefore, God calls this exactly what it is. He calls it sin. This is a concrete example of sinning. They abandoned God's word to walk in their own way. Not only is this a concrete example of sin, it's also a way for the people to show a concrete expression of repentance. God said that there's a way that they're supposed to bring their tithe in, a way that they're supposed uh, to live before God. And they have cast that aside. And God said, here's the path of repentance for you. Walk in my ways. They're to express repentance in a particular way. And it has to do with their tithing. So that's one reason God brings this up. They're actively sinning against God. One reason. Reason number two is that Israel's lack of giving what God required was symptomatic of a deeper problem. The lack of giving exposes a deeper problem. Namely, it exposes a heart problem. And I want to explore why that is. So let's ask a question. What does lack of tithing, which is an external thing, what does a lack of tithing, this external thing, show about what's going on in the heart, which is an internal thing? Once you see that, something outside them is happening, but it's revealing something going on inside their heart. And I want to know, what is it? And I think there's two answers to this question. The first answer is greed. The people are growing greedy. They began to grow a particular love for the, the things that God gave them. This is greed. The increase from their labor began to look better in their own houses than in taking it to the storehouse of God. It began to look better there. And so what happened was their grip on these things began to grow tighter and tighter. This is greed. This is what's underneath. This is the internal reason why we see this external lack of tithing here. And the second thing this reveals, second thing this the lack of tithing, this external thing, reveals about what's going on in their heart is that they have no fear of God. Now, let's look ahead just for a minute at verse 14. Verse 14, God looks at them and he said, you have said, it's vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And so this helps us to get a little bit of an insight into what the reasoning of their heart is. The root sin here is that there is no fear of God. And that's the root sin because the whole time they're, they're, they're not giving. It's because they're saying serving God is just vain. They don't fear God. And out of this root comes fruit of greed. Their internal lack of fear of God led to external tight-fistedness with tithes and contributions that belong to God. So yes, God absolutely calls their tithing, this external thing, into account because of sin. He absolutely does it for the very express reason of pointing out sin. And I want to be very clear about that. But that's not the only reason that he does this. He also does this to call attention to a deeper issue. And if they don't get this deeper issue fixed, no amount of tithing is going to help them. They have a fear problem, and God wants them to see that proof. And so, because of this fear problem, willing itself up in greed, expressing itself by lack of tithing, and sinning against the, the Lord of glory, God Almighty, what does he do? What's the consequence of their walking uh, or they're not walking in obedience to God? And we see this in verse nine. Verse nine says, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And so they're under a curse. God literally cursed them. God always brings a punishment that fits the crime. The people of God are refusing to give God the portion of the produce of their soil, which is due according to his law. And therefore, God is cursing them. 
So what does this curse look like? And I think that the essence of this curse is found in verse 10 through 10 and 11. God says, bring the full tithe into my storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up the, uh, the, the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it does not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine and your field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So the, the essence of the curse is found here. It says, God says, I'll send a devourer. He had sent a devourer to, to eat this, uh, their crops. And as a result of this, because you're not tithing, I'm going to send a devourer to eat your crops, to take the spoils of your increase. And as a result of this, in the very place that you're robbing me, God says, I'm going to withhold from you. You withhold what I give you. Therefore, I'm going to withhold giving any of it to you. I'm going to take it from you. I think this curse teaches us at least a little bit about the lengths that God is willing to go to draw his people back to himself. God's desire here, his heart in a curse is not to just curse people at all. God's desire here is that his people would draw near himself, his, that uh, his people would walk in obedience. And God is willing to devour the food, the fruit of their soil for the sake of getting them to do that. But they're wanting to hold on to their things. Their, product, their produce and their income and not give it to God. And so in order to draw God, for God to draw them back to himself, he takes away the things they're trying to hold on to so that they have to hold on to him. It's a principle for us to learn here. Now, this passage of Scripture is not hard to understand, thankfully. But I do want us to walk away with one thing from this passage of Scripture. And I want us to feel the, the weight of this passage. So if we were to zoom out and think about what's being said here, I think it'll help us to feel the weight of what God is saying here. God looks at Israel, this people who, who he has helped for thousands of years, and he says, the only reason you're alive is because of me. You're the worst covenant keepers this planet has ever seen, and you're alive now, not because of anything you've done, but because I'm an unchanging, ever-faithful God, and I have not consumed you. We need to feel the weight of hearing that from God Almighty. What a charge. You're just as sinful as your fathers whom I sent into exile from, because of their sin. God says, you have never walked in my ways, just like your daddy. You're no better than your daddy's, and they were terrible. Now you're walking in the same sins that they walked in, and worse, you're robbing me. Can you imagine hearing this, walking into a court of law before a defending attorney has a chance to say anything on your behalf? Judge says, guilty, robbing me. That's bad news. You're in trouble. God says, therefore, since you're so calloused in heart so as to rob me and keep my resources to yourself, I'm going to send a curse to you and take away the very thing that you're wanting. These are heavy words. Imagine hearing this. Imagine God saying this to you about your job because you're robbing him. I'm going to take it away from you because you love it so much. But... Now that I've created a nice tension in the room, I want us to see that even though this passage is heavy, God's, word are, God's words are heavy here. This passage is so full of grace. It's chock full of God's grace. And so while I want us to feel the weight of what God is saying, I want us to make sure that we understand that these are very serious charges God is bringing. We don't want to land there. We want to make sure that we see that God's grace is abounding here. In verse 7, this is the first time in the entire prophecy that we see God give any inkling of, of repentance. He offers them repentance. Look at what it says in verse 7. God says, return to me and I will return to you. Sweet words. God's literally addressing the worst sinners on the planet. And God says, but return to me and I will return to you. Verse 11 I'm sorry, uh, not verse 11. God says, if you esteem my name and walk in my ways by bringing in what I require, then I will open heaven for you. This is verse 10. God says, test me in this. Test me. Walk in my ways. Be obedient to my commands. Test me and see if I don't bless you. Verse 11 says, you won't have a single crop that will fail to bear. 
Any, anybody with an ag background in here will know that that's a near impossibility. And God says, come to me. Walk in obedience. Test me in this. You won't have one single crop that won't bear. Verse 12, God says, I'll meet your needs so clearly that the nations will see and will know that you belong to me, to the creator of the universe. This passage is full of God's grace. So I want us to make sure we see that. Heavy, heavy words from God. And yet so much grace in the midst of these words. So much grace. Now, does this passage about robbing God, about robbing God by not tithing, does this apply to us? And I think that uh, maybe everybody in here, I don't want to generalize too much, but uh, most of you in here maybe grew up in a, a Baptist background. And I just remember growing up and hearing sermons about tithing, and uh, it, was, it was weird. I didn't understand them, but everybody was always like, oh, man, man, man. Preachers tell us to give more money. You know, there's always this, this weird aura around uh, passages that talk about tithing, which is why Dustin O'Ryan gave me the passage that talks about tithing. <laughs> so I understand that that tension is there, which is why I want to ask this question. Does this passage that talks about tithing, does this passage that says that you can rob God by not tithing, does it apply to us? Now, I'm not about to tell anybody to tithe. So... Side relief there. Uh, when Christ Jesus shed his blood on the cross, the blood that he shed was inaugurating a new covenant. And therefore, we do not sit before God this morning uh, with a required minimum amount of giving. We are free from the law that mandates a required minimum of giving. And so I'm not about to ask anyone to tithe this morning. However... Let's ask one other question. This question is, is it possible? Is it possible for us to hold on to our resources in such a way that we rob God in the exact same way that this people rob God? I ask that again. Is it possible for us to hold on to our resources in such a way that we rob God? We're guilty of robbing God in the exact same way that this people is robbing God. I think the answer to this question is yes, it is possible for us to be accused by God of robbing him. And to show this, to illustrate this, I want us to flip to the New Testament. Hold your place here. Let's look quickly. Ephesians 4, 28. Ephesians 4, 28. Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So, so for Paul, <clears throat> Paul says, and you've got to track with me here, the alternative to stealing, according to Ephesians 4.28, the alternative to stealing is not work so that you can have to keep. That's not, the, that's not the alternative that Paul mentions here. The alternative to stealing that Paul says is, is work so that you may have to give. So, for Paul, the increased gain from working was not so that someone would be able to stop stealing, mainly. Certainly, Paul didn't want people stealing, which is why he said, get a job. But Paul's only goal, not Paul's goal, was not only for these people to get a job so that they wouldn't have to steal. Paul's mind here is that they would have a job so that they would be able to open-handedly, freely have something to give. And I think this is instructive for us. So therefore, the increase that we gain from our jobs, if I'm looking at Ephesians 4.28 rightly, the increase that we get from our jobs is meant to be a means through which God blesses others for his namesake. So, do I think this passage about tithing applies to us and how we think about giving and stewardship? Yes, I absolutely do. It directly speaks to us about how we think about giving and stewardship. 
So, what does it teach us about giving? If you're a note taker, I hope you are. I have three points here. What does this passage teach us about our giving? Number one, giving is a matter of the heart. Giving is a matter of the heart in the same way that fruit is a matter of the tree. I'll say that again. Giving is a matter of the heart in the same way that fruit is a matter of the tree. Fruit on the tree always indicates what type of tree it is. Doesn't take long to understand that. See an apple, use logic and reasoning, you deduce that that's an apple tree. I'm a simple-minded man. See an orange growing on a tree? I think they grow on trees. A bush? No, orange, definitely trees. Orange on a tree? Logic and reason says orange tree. Giving is a matter of the heart in the same way that fruit is a matter of the tree. And so in the same way that the fruit on the tree indicates the type of tree, likewise, giving is the indicator of what's going on in the heart. More specifically, giving is an indicator of uh, what the heart treasures. The second thing we learn, I'm referencing Ephesians 4.28 here. Considering our jobs, the money that we make, what's the point of it? According to Ephesians 4.28, you don't have a job just for the purpose of you not having to steal. You have a job so that you can have something to give. Not just have to keep, it's have to give. And so with that in mind, point number two is that we are not to be like dams. Not to be like dams. What's a dam do? Put a dam up to slow down the flow of a river or creek or body of water. You slow it down or you stop it all together. Think of the spillway. Yeah. Uh, dams slow the flow. We are not to be like dams that block up and hold back God's resources. We are to be like channels through which God's resources flow for the sake of his name among the nations, for the sake of making his name known. And I want to be real clear. You have a job for God's sake. Yes, it's for you. Sure, you need to eat. God knows that. But if I want to get underneath all of that, the very bottom, or another way to say it, if I want to reach the ultimate thing, the ultimate reason you have a job is not centered on you. And that's the mistake that this people made in Malachi. It's a mistake that we should avoid, which is why this is in the section of people we should not be like. We are not like dams that block up God's resources. We are like channels through which God gives resources so that his name and his glory might be made known. And number three, what does this passage teach us about giving? God promises to meet the needs of people who fearfully and cheerfully give. And I want to say that again with some emphasis. God promises to meet the needs of all those who fearfully and cheerfully give. God said he would open up heaven to meet the needs of people. I believe that's hyperbole. A little bit of an exaggeration. God doesn't need to open up heaven. God owns everything on earth. God makes everything happen according to his will. And yet, to express how serious he is that he will meet needs, he uses an exaggeration and says, I will open up heaven to meet your needs. <laughs> uh, so, God promises to open up heaven to meet the needs of his people. And so, how do we know that? That's Old Testament, right? Nick, you're looking at Malachi. How do we know that this is true for us today? God said in Malachi's day that he'll promise to open up heaven for those who fearfully and cheerfully give. What does that have to do with us? And the simple, clear, glorious answer is that God opened up heaven and sent his own son into the world. That's how I know God is willing to do something like open up heaven to supply what we need in this life. God did something far greater than meeting temporal needs. He did something far greater than giving us food to eat and clothes to wear. He solved our sin problem that we had before him. God opened up heaven and sent his son 
2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So in an argument from the greatest to the least, God does a far greater thing, willingly, lovingly, desire to send his son into the world so that he might solve the greatest need you've ever had, which is separation from him because of sin. And he solved that by sending his son who died on the cross for our sin. And God was so willing to do that. And if God did not spare his own son, if he didn't do that, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things that we need in this life, like food, like shelter, like clothes? How will he not do that? The logic is nowhere to be found. God will always give us what we need in this life. Now, <clears throat> I want to make sure that that lands on you the right way. What this passage teaches us about giving is that our hearts can be really jacked up in the way that we think about giving. And the fact that God sent his own son into the world is supposed to be a motivator to us to give, to freely give, to open up uh, our homes, open up bank accounts, open up wallets, whatever it looks like to freely give. The verse in 2 Corinthians 8 9 is meant to be a motivation for us to do that because look at how willing God was to send his son into the world to become poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. So take confidence. Hold fast to these promises. God didn't spare his own son. He will give us all things that we need in this life. Now, I want to attach a warning to this anytime because of our sinful hearts, because of, of uh, the sinful culture that we live in. Anytime you come to a passage that mentions money in any way, it always has potential to be a high-octane, full-throttle, prosperity gospel teaching. And this one is no different. This is no different. So I want to make sure that we think rightly about God's promises to sustain us. And so, I want to say one thing about what this passage does not teach. We said several things about what it does teach. Here's one thing it does not teach. This passage does not teach that merely bringing in your money will be rewarded with God's favor. I'll say it again. This passage does not teach that merely bringing in your money will be rewarded with God's favor. As we've already said, giving is a matter of the heart. It's a heart indicator in the same way that fruit is a tree indicator. And so I want to illustrate this for us, that this is a heart issue, not just an amount issue. It's not just a money issue. The heart is what we need to be uh, seeking and searching out here. What's the motives here? And I want to illustrate this in the book of Malachi. So look back at chapter 2, verse 13. This is God speaking again. He says, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altars, uh, the Lord's altar with tears. With weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And so these people, they're bringing in offerings. They're bringing them in. And, and they're, they're doing more than bringing in offerings. They're bringing in offerings and they're weeping. And you know that every time you see somebody in church on a Sunday crying, you, you think they're serious and they mean what they're singing about or praying about, right? And that's... Same thing's going on here. They're bringing in their altar into God's house with weeping and with groaning. And they're, they're in anguish before God. And yet, God did not accept it. Nothing to do with it. Don't want that. Why? Because their heart was set on sinning. They came in on Sunday or Sabbath day, brought in their their sacrifice, put their offering on the table, were there with weeping and gnashing of teeth, all this repentant-like attitude. They were there with it on Sunday. And when they walked out of that church service on Sunday, on Monday, their heart was fully set to do sinning. They continued in faithlessness in marriages. They had no hearts for God. Their hearts were unstirred towards walking in the fear of the Lord. And yet, they're still bringing in their sacrifices and offerings and wondering, why isn't God... Why isn't God responding? It's because their heart was wrong. 
And so the same thing is true in our passage. Their hearts were far from God. No amount of tithing from anyone can remedy that. And so a principle for us this morning is if you come to Jesus for money, he's not your God. Money is. If you come to Jesus for money, Jesus is not your God. Money is your God. They had a heart problem, and God was exposing them. So, we're going to move on. What else in this passage instructs us in, this, in the sort of people we ought to be? Let's read verses 13 through 15 here. God says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it's vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So let's notice something here. We started off with this in an introduction. These people were not talking to God when they said these things. They weren't. Verse 14, they say things like, what's the profit of our keeping his charge? Walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. They don't say things like, what's the profit of keeping your charge? So this is conversation that they're having with one another. Speaking to each other about these things. These are conversations at the coffee shop. This is work lunch. This is mommy morning out conversations with one another. And we see that God hears it. He hears every line. And more than that, he sees every single motive here. So if I were to take 13 through 15, 14 and 15, and say, what's a, what's a summary of their words? I'll summarize it this way. They're saying, it doesn't profit to serve God. In fact, it really profits not to serve God. Doesn't profit to serve him? Totally profits to not serve him. And so, what's wrong with these statements? There's a lot wrong with these statements. Let's look at what's wrong with these statements. The first thing that's wrong with these statements, the first statement is it doesn't pay, it doesn't profit to serve God. And the first thing that's wrong with it is that these words are the words of lifeless, cold, dead formalism, ritualism, lifeless words here. It doesn't pay to serve God, and this exposes deadness in their soul. Now, why do I say that? Well, look down at verse 14. Verse 14, it says, uh, you have said it's vain to serve God. They're emphatically saying, it's vain to serve God. This is complete futility. I want to serve God. This is a total vanity. And yet, the text also in verse 14 says that they're keeping God's charge and walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And so it's as if they put on their repentant clothes, which is the walking as in mourning before the Lord. The literal idea here is that they're putting on these dark clothes to show I'm super repentant. I'm incredibly penitent before God. They're putting on these clothes and they're walking around to look a certain way. So the idea is that if we put on our repentant clothes and half-heartedly carry out God's charge out of a sense of duty, all the while they say to another, what a waste of time. This is vanity. This is formalism. It's ritualism. Their hearts don't match their habits. They are acting purely out of formality and not from faithful hearts toward God. This is the problem. And not only do they do that here, but in the passage that we just came out of, the same thing is happening. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, God says, bring the full tithe into my storehouse. And as we've said already, if the people are bringing in a tithe at all, it was only a portion of it. So consider this with me. Why are they bringing in a tithe at all? If their hearts are screaming, it's vain to serve God. You bring in your tithe, you drop it in the box, you say, Man, why would they do Something like that. For the same reason that they were bringing in blind, lame sacrifices to God. This is religious formalism. Going through the motions. Don't know why we're doing it. It just seems like vanity. We're going to do it though. This is formalism. 
These people have the forms of religion down pat. They look better than any of us in here. Got the greatest forms of religion down pat that you can imagine. They had godly-looking habits without having God-honoring hearts. And so one simple thing that we should learn from this is motives matter. The motives behind your habits matter. The motive behind your hearts, or the, the motive of your heart matters. And here, their motives are now exposed. Vanity to serve God. Motives exposed. Even their half-hearted tithing and half-hearted walking so as to look repentant was only motivated by a hope of being well paid for it. This is formalism of the worst kind. God is not honored by forms of worship without fear in worship. God is not wor worshipped by the external things that we do when our hearts are far from Him. The internal thing that matters. The internal is supposed to guide the external. There's no such thing as God-honoring motions without God-honoring motives behind them. This is a lesson for us. There is a way that we can walk in this exact same thing. I believe, I know this about most, most of you, that you fear, as I do, worshiping God when your heart is far from Him. Singing, praying, reading the word. I know that most of you in here fear that. And I'm thankful that I'm not standing here preaching this to people who I have no idea who they are. And I don't know their hearts. And their hearts might be exactly where these people are. For the most part here, I know that uh, brothers and sisters in here fear the idea of worshiping God while their hearts are far from Him. But I will say that this ought to be something that we fear so much that we take we take great precautions to make sure that we are not guilty of this, that we don't walk in this ourselves. The second thing wrong, that's wrong with what they're saying, they say it really profits not to serve God. So not only is it, is it vain to serve Him, but when I look out, it actually it makes more sense just to not serve God. This comes from verse 15. Verse 15, the people say, now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. And so think about this. When the people look out and survey the, the pagan groups around them, the pagan people around them who are not the people of God, they're not Israel, what do they see? They see people prospering. Life looks easy for them. They don't have the trouble that we as God's people have. The, the psalmist in Psalm 73, he actually writes about this exact same thing. I encourage you to go read that. Psalm 73, <clears throat> verse 4, he's looking out, he's doing the same thing that these people are doing, saying it seems like not profiting not, or not serving God is where I'll find profit. And he's looking out and he says things like, these people who put God to the test and escape, they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They're at ease. They're prospering. And these are not even God's people. And what makes it worse is they're arrogant. It's not just random people profiting from God. It's evildoers. And they're prideful about it. Psalm 73, verse 9, the God continues, the psalmist continues, and he says, They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. And so, a simple question, do you know anybody like that? I had conversations with incredibly wealthy atheists. Did it, did it bother you? Or the, the agnostic who, yeah, there's a God, but it didn't have anything to do with us. And everything that God touches turns to gold, man. It just doesn't seem right. If you've ever had those feelings, I want, I want you to know you're in a perfect place to relate, to really relate to what these people are feeling when they say, it's almost like it profits to not serve God. It pays to not serve God. Look at these people. And so as they see these things, 
as they consider what they're seeing in the lands around them, a voice rises up in their heart. And what's it sound like? It sounds like serving God is vain. Forget this serving God business. You know who has this blessing thing from God figured out? The evildoers do. They've got this thing figured out. I'm going to do like them. They put God to the test all day long. God never calls them into account. They made a conclusion here. They made a conclusion that these people are the blessed ones. These people are the ones whom God honors, whom God has set apart. They drew a conclusion here that they may as well do as the arrogant and the evildoer, since God seems to make no distinction between those who serve him and those who do not. And they are wrong in their conclusion. So before we go further, I want us to know why they're wrong. We're going to get there. But if you have found yourself in a position where you really feel like you're relating to the prosperity of the arrogant and the evildoer, if you, if you can relate to that, I can. And you should know that the response they have is the absolute wrong response. Do not respond that way. God makes a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The reality is, is that God is going to fully and finally distinguish right from wrong in his time in the future. He is going to do that. Look down at verse 18. This is God speaking. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. God says, there's a time coming when I'm going to publicly, visibly make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. This is not the first time that this has been mentioned in this prophecy. God says it many times right here at the end of this prophecy. And he says it in many different ways, but he's describing the exact same thing. But the first time that we heard about this distinction was last week. Last week, Ryan showed us two groups that God was going to distinguish between in chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. And these groups are referred to two ways. Two names for these groups. The purified and the judged. Purified and judged. And he says he's going to make this distinction. God is going to do that. Now, who does God say is going to be in the group that God is going to draw near to for judgment when he makes this distinction? In verse 5, at the end of verse 5, tells us, It's those who do not fear me, says the Lord. Those who do not fear God. Will be made, will have the distinction made that they are going to be judged by God. So, with that, let's move into our last section and let's consider the sort of people that we should be. Verse 16 says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance, remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. And I want us to notice two things about verse 16. The first thing is that fear is mentioned twice here. Fear is mentioned here to highlight the character that God greatly approves of. Notice again in verse 16, as we started out saying, that God takes note, notice of people while they converse with one another. Verse 16, these people were not talking to God. It's very clear. It says they are talking to one another. And so God takes notice. And again, this is just to prove, to highlight the point that all of our life is a stage, like a theater. We are the actors. God sits front and center, front and center, and he doesn't miss a line 
He doesn't miss a motive. God heard conversation that these people who feared him were having with one another. And I want us, the second thing I want us to notice about verse 16, verse 16 and 17, is how God responds to those who fear him and esteem his name. I'm going to speak this, we're closing up now, and I'm going to speak this in the, in the, the way that God sees these people. But the reality is, is for those here today who fear God and esteem his name, we should read this as promises for ourselves. Promises that we can hold on to. So if you're here today and you are in Christ, you fear God, you hold God's name as very valuable, you highly treasure God. I want you to hear these next four points as promises. Promises that God's made about you. This is very personal. So hear this. Here's how God responds to those who fear Him and esteem His name. Verse 16, it says that God paid attention to Him. How many conversations do you have throughout the day and you just think, it's just you and your buddy, you and your girlfriend. God paid attention to them. God knows every star by name. He upholds all things by the word of his power. So much higher than us. And God pays attention to those, to the words of those who fear him and esteem his name. He listens. Another thing God did was he wrote their names in a book of remembrance. Imagine that. God was so pleased with what he heard coming out of the mouths of these people who feared him and esteemed his name that he wanted to remember it. He wrote it in a book of remembrance. God claimed them as his own. I get this from verse 17. He says, they shall be mine in the day that I make up my treasured possession. He didn't just claim property here. He didn't just say, I'll take that one, that one. Like he's totally disconnected from the property. He didn't do that. He claimed them and then he designated them as his own treasured possession. God promised to spare them when he comes and publicly distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. These people will not barely be spared. For you who fear God and esteem his name, you will not barely be spared. We're going to be spared with the treatment that a son or a daughter gets who serves their father. And you have, to, you have to come to a text like this and just ask the question, why? This is God. We deserve no sweet words from God like this. We deserve none of this. It's an incredible thing to think that God is going to spare those who fear his name and esteem him, who value him highly, that God is going to make a distinction between them and everyone else in the entire earth. He's going to make a distinction between them. And we have to ask, who are we? How, do we, how is this possible that God can do such a thing? That God would do such a thing? We are no different from the people in the book of Malachi. We have sinned greatly against God. If it was a survey, everyone in here individually today, I think that we would all say, yes, we've even robbed God like these people have. So therefore, what do we deserve like these people got? Curse. And yet God says that for those who fear him and esteem his name, he's going to spare them as a father spares his own son. How is that possible? And brothers and sisters in here who are in Christ, who do fear God and esteem his name, this is only possible because God did not spare his own son. 
He gave him up for us all. God is willing to spare us his sons because his son took the punishment that we deserve because we were sinful against him. Christ Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we might be able to come to God and be spared as God spares a son who serves him. And this is only possible because Jesus Christ bore punishment that we deserve for sin. It's only possible. And now let me ask, or if you're here today, you're not in Christ, you maybe openly say that, I'm not a believer, uh, I don't believe these things. The text that we're reading today comes as a warning to us. It comes to a warning to us in chapter 3. Verse 18, where God says he is going to make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Those here who are not in Christ, who do not fear God and esteem his name, the, the way the Bible speaks of those who do not fear God is the wicked. So the way that the Bible speaks about you this morning is the wicked. And the warning that we should walk away with this morning is that, that God is going to make a distinction between the wicked and the wicked. And the righteous. And if you look ahead quickly to chapter 4, verse 1, God says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming that should, that day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are not in Christ, this is the future for those who do not fear God and esteem his name. And so I encourage you to think about your soul. Everything that we've done this morning has been done to the end that you would think about your soul and your standing before God. And if you're not in Christ this morning, you need to know that you stand as guilty before God. You are the same type person that is listed here in the book of Malachi. And God says, I'm going to come here to them for judgment. And when I come here to them for judgment, it is not going to be good. And so take this as a warning. But also, listen, you may have walked in here not being spared by God because God's judgment is over here. But you can walk out of here being one whom God spares like he spares a spares son who serves him. That can happen for you. God sent his son into the world. Jesus Christ came and he died on a cross. And that does no good for anybody. Jesus Christ dying. But when Jesus died, he bore the penalty for us. He bore the punishment of our wrath. He bore the punishment of our sin by God pouring out his wrath on Christ Jesus. He bore that. The sin that you deserve, Christ Jesus took. And God proved this to be true. God proved that, that he was making a way for sinners to be made righteous in his sight, to have their sins removed because he raised Christ from the dead. He raised him from the dead and proved that all that he said about the son was true. And Christ Jesus right now is alive, ruling and reigning. And the next thing that we see, the next time we see Christ Jesus, we're going to be seeing him in this capacity when he returns. The day of the Lord is going to return and Christ Jesus is going to do a separating action. He's going to separate people on the right and the left, those who fear him and those who do not. And God said that all those who turn to Christ Jesus turn from their sin and hold fast to Christ Jesus, they will not be put to shame. God will spare them as a man spares a son who serves him. God will, will uh, call them his possession, his treasured possession. So if you're in here this morning, you don't know Christ, I encourage you to turn from your sin and trust in him. Hold fast to him. He is the only way that God has made for us to stand before him as righteous. And the moment that you do that, God will make a distinction between you and those who do not. I encourage you, please do that. So if you're in Christ, if you're not in Christ today, consider these things. And the last thing, the last thing I want to say is I want to encourage those who are in Christ this morning. <laughs> when we hear that God uh, hears everything that we say, and we hear that God doesn't miss a motive, He doesn't miss a line, He sits front and center on the stage of the theater that is, that is our life, and we hear God doesn't miss a word, I think there's a tendency, I feel this tendency, to recoil back just a little bit. 
we get nervous when we hear stuff like that. And that's right, and that's good. I think it's a good, good response. But that's not the only response that we should have. I want you to know that God hearing you means that God will never overlook any words of encouragement you give. God will never overlook any words of grace. You don't have to have massive heroic faith to be uh, pleasing to God. God is willing to accept weak faith. For those who fear God, God records what they say. God listens in on listen, listens in on the conversation. And I want you to know that God hears you. And so I want to make this personal for just a minute. Is there, a, are there any mothers? Are there any of the mothers to raise their hand this morning? If there's any mothers here, hold them up for just a second. Okay. I just want to really encourage the mothers this morning. <clears throat> I know that raising kids is really hard. And I know that raising kids feels really lonely. You feel like you are at home by yourself, probably because you are, and you don't have uh, many avenues of encouragement like you used to before you had kids and before you were married. You don't have those avenues anymore, maybe. And I know that it's hard. And I know that it's lonely. But I want you to know, and I want you to take encouragement in this, that God hears and is so pleased with every word of grace that you speak to your children, even when it's only your child that hears it. God hears it. And not only does he hear it, he takes note of these things. He looks down on the mothers who speak sweetly to their children when their kids are running around like crazy. Because I've got kids that run around like crazy. God looks down on them and he says, they are mine. Treasured possession. He sets his seal on those mothers. He says, I want to encourage you. God hears you. So don't lose heart in encouraging your children. Don't lose heart in speaking grace to your children. Don't lose heart in speaking grace to your husbands who don't understand the things you go through. Take encouragement that God hears you. And this is a sweet thing because he hears you. He remembers you. He says, you are mine, my treasured possession. There's coming a time because of your fear of his name that he's going to spare you as a man spares a son who serves him. That's encouraging. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we praise you that you have spoken to us. And God, that you have, you have given us uh, gracious words, Lord. And not only gracious words, but you have given us uh, words for our warning, so God, that we might turn from our sin and turn to you. Now we thank you for this, God. We thank you that you, you are uh, a God who hears. You're not far off. Uh, you draw near to us. God, I praise you for making a way for us who are sinners, Lord, to stand before you as righteous. God, to stand before you as cleansed from our sin. We praise you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that this word would be to us a joy and the delights of our heart. We pray these things this morning in Christ's name. Amen.